I had an eye doctor's appointment uh, recently, and uh, you know everything was going well. And he says you have to prepare over the next probably five years. You're going to probably need reading glasses. You're you're you know you're in your 40s now, and your eyes are going to start changing. He's kind of having this preemptive conversation with me, and um, for the last uh, you know 10 years, 12 years, I've enjoyed 20/20 vision. I've had 20/20 vision not because my eyes were good, but because 12 years ago I had laser eye surgery. And laser eye surgery is this astounding thing because prior to that I had these really, really bad astigmatisms in, in, in both of my eyes. And I had this surgery and it's astounding to me to think that I see the world differently because an incredibly powerful, incredibly precise light was shone into my eyes. Um, and that, that powerful light was shone into my eyes and it actually cut things away that were impeding my ability to see clearly. And light is amazing. It, it, it operates as both a particle and a wave and I don't know how it all works because I'm not that intelligent in, in that you know, realm of academia, so that's as far as I'm going to talk about it. But it's amazing. Powerful light shone into my eyes, cuts things away, I see the world differently. In John chapter 8, which is our text for this morning, Jesus makes an announcement, and he says, I am the light of the world. And this is one of the seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself in the Gospel of John. We've been looking at them. Because the way that God talks about himself is very revealing. There's cultural conversations about God and about who he is and what he's like, and we can have our own ideas about who he is and what he's like that are framed by our upbringing, framed by other people's opinions. And so when we go back to the text to say, how is it that God actually describes himself? What is it that we can learn about who this God is? And so originally in Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he announced, I am the great I am. And then Jesus, recalling that, Seven times through the Gospel of John, very intentionally revealing himself as the great I am, as God incarnate, says these things, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the vine, I am the true vine. All of these statements he makes reveal a little bit about who he is and what he came to do. And this morning we're going to look at John chapter 8, at this powerful light, like that laser that comes into our life and cuts things away and changes absolutely everything. John chapter 8, the verse 16 verses. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him and ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing there before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. 
And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This is God's word. Now when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, he's not just dispensing a vague metaphorical idea about enlightenment. He actually makes the announcement about being the light of the world after John very intentionally shows us and gives us a very vivid example of what it means for him to be the light of the world. That, that exchange with the woman that was thrown into the street by these religious snakes. It's very clearly depicted what it, when, what it means for him to be the light of the world. And then he makes this glorious announcement that he's the light of the world. And light doesn't just illuminate things. Light changes things. Light gives life to things. And so in this passage this morning that John gives us, how he puts those two things together in his gospel, we get a very, very clear picture of why Jesus came into the world. We see the light of the world in action. Someone's in sin. Sin leads to death. Christ comes and interrupts that trajectory. And this is what we get. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus is the light of the world who dispels the darkness of your sin with the light of his grace. Now let's go through and see how this all unfolds and how this unpacks. It's amazing. They find this woman. They're stalking her. It's it's ridiculous and tragic and embarrassing. The religious community in Jesus' day were so far away from the heart of God, you're not going to find anything in all of the New Testament where Jesus affirms how they interpret God's law. They're just constantly misrepresenting God's heart. The only, time, the only thing you'll find where it seems close that he's close to commending them is he says, okay, you guys are tithing um, and you're taking 10% of all of your, your spices and you're giving them to the temple. Okay, good for you, kind of, but it's sort of a backhanded comment because he, right on his next breath he says, but you're not even taking care of the widows, so what are you people doing? Jesus has nothing good to say about how the religious community is conveying the heart of God. So they find this woman... They throw her into the street, and they turn to Jesus, and they say, hey, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? And I need you to know something. That phrase, what do you say, when they say to Jesus, what do you say, they're not just saying, what's your opinion? What do you think? It's actually, in the Greek, the word say is legais, which in this particular uh, form of the phrase, what they're saying is, give us a conclusive argument. What do you say? They're saying, in English, the phrase in English, we, we, could, we would say, hey, say something that puts the issue to bed. See, there's a difference between just saying something and saying something when you're trying to conclude an argument. And what they want Jesus to do is conclude the argument. Really what they're saying is, we want to know, what is God's last word on sin? Tell us. That's the gravity of this. What does Jesus do with this? Hey, Jesus, we want to know what God's last word on sin is. Again, they're so far from the heart of God. They've taken this poor woman, they've thrown her into the street, and they're, they're salivating over her, the judgment of her sin. 
It's ridiculous. Jesus starts writing on the ground. What do we learn from this? They say, what is God's final word on sin? So Jesus is writing on the ground. This is the third time in all of Scripture the finger of God is writing. The first time the finger of God was writing was in Exodus 34 when he wrote the Ten Commandments. The second time the finger of God was writing was in Daniel chapter 5 when the king and everybody was evil and God writes on the wall, you have been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. So the first time the finger of God writes, it's the Ten Commandments, which of course nobody could keep. The second time the finger of God writes, he says you've been weighed and measured and found wanting because again, you're, you're still not keeping it. And now the finger of God is writing again in the sand. What did Jesus write? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I'm not going to speculate. But the point is, He's taking the posture of the divine legislator. And then he gets up and he says something. The question is, what's God's final word on sin? But before he answers that, he says, which of you has no sin? Because from your point of view, you're keeping the law. And I need you to know, you're not keeping the law. God's law is a ten-foot net that none of you are dunking on. You seem to think by your good behavior that you're okay with God because your performance is so good, and I need you to know that that's just simply not true. Jesus says, they say, what's God's final word on sin? Jesus says, which of you is without sin? Of course, they all leave, which teaches us something really significant. He does answer the question, by the way, and I'm going to get to it. But what he teaches us is, whether you're irreligious like the woman caught in adultery, or you're very religious, like the rule keeper, nobody's without sin. So before Jesus answers, what's God's final word on sin? God's, Jesus says, let me make sure that you understand the gravity of God's law. It requires perfect and perpetual personal obedience. It requires that you're 100% loving God, trusting God, and 100% loving your neighbor. And none of us are doing that. None of them are doing it. None of us are doing it. It was astounding what he did because the pause, he's writing on the ground and they all leave. It allows everybody to grapple with the gravity of the situation. And so he says, let the one who has no, no sin cast the first stone. And then all of the pompous religious snakes who are salivating over judging her sin have to concede that they're not without sin. In fact, when, when, the, when, the, when the true standard of God's law presents itself, it clears the room. Nobody can stand. They were the best rule keepers in the city. And they were like, we have to go. We're not. The gravity of it. They leave. And then, after they all leave, Jesus answers the question. Right? They want to know, hey, what's God's final word on sin? Now he answers the question. Now the only one there to hear the answer is this woman. And it's powerful and it's beautiful and it's astounding. And so he gives God's final word on sin. But it's not what anybody was expecting. Because the final word on sin is, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, God's first word on sin in her life was the exposing work of his law. That's the first word on sin. But the last word on sin, God's last word on the sin in her life, was not the exposing work of his law. The last word of sin on his life was the exonerating work of his grace. 
which is what the religious community didn't get. They're priests. What's their job? They're supposed to go and atone for people's sin. What are they doing? Not atoning for her sin. Not going before God and saying, Oh God, this woman, please, would you forgive? They're not doing their job. They're throwing her in the street and saying, Let's stone her. You can go back throughout the whole, 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 te- whole Old Testament and you're going to find you, God keeps continually trying to reveal himself as a God of mercy for our sin because none of us can stand in his presence because none of us can dunk on the ten-foot net of his law. So God's continually, that's why all throughout the Old Testament, you know, Abraham is coming before God and he's pleading for the city. And every time he goes back and pleads to God, God keeps on saying, I'll give mercy, I'll give mercy, I'll give mercy. Every time, I'll give mercy. Right? Even the great flood, God didn't get angry in the morning and flood the world in the afternoon. There was a lifetime before that judgment came. An entire lifetime. It was, it was somewhere between 70 to 100 years between that, where God is constantly calling, 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 calling. And here... They just throw her into the street. Hey, what's God's final word on sin? Jesus is like, you don't even, even understand. i got to write in the sand and calm myself down like a parent that is trying to gather themselves so they can speak very strongly and quietly and distinctly to their children. How many of you have ever had your parent talk to you like that? You say something and your parent goes, okay, right? That's Jesus writing in the sand, gathering himself. Hey, Jesus, what's God's final word on sin? Should we stone her? Jesus. You're not even close. You're not even close to the heart of God. Who has no sin? They leave. Let me answer. The final word on your sin is not the exposing work of God's law. That's his first word on your sin and mine. The final word on our sin is the exonerating work of his gospel. And so when Jesus makes this phrase, whoever can cast, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone, the light of the world is illuminating our need for our Savior. Because nobody can do it. Every, the whole, everybody leaves. And then when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, the light of the world is illuminating himself as our Savior. He's revealing it. It's glorious and beautiful and powerful. And notice the divine order of what Jesus says. Notice how the light of the world shines the spotlight on God's grace. The first thing he says is, neither I condemn you. And the second thing he says is, go and sin no more. That divine order is very important. Because legalists and, you know, modern day Pharisees who do not understand the grace of God will always preach and teach um, the, the scriptures or they will raise their children in an environment where the idea is, Go and sin no more, and then God won't condemn you. It's totally backwards. It's not the gospel. It's opposite world of the heart of God. It's not go and sin no more, and if you continually live a life of sinning no more, then God won't condemn you. No. It's because God does not condemn you, because Jesus Christ has done it all and forgiven all your sin, because in Jesus Christ your sin has been washed away, go and sin no more. Go and live in the, the, first the light shone into your eyes and exposed the unevangelized parts of your heart. And now you go with the, with the glorious thanks, thankfulness for that grace. And you desire to live to the glory of that grace with an ever-increasing lifelong desire of sinning no more. And of course, none of us are without sin. And none of us are going to sin, uh, are going to sin no more. But there's a heart recalibration. There's a heart reorientation. When Jesus just says to this woman, who's obviously had... Uh, you know, uh, an incredibly hard life and a thousand things that led her to the place that she was at. And he says to her, go and sin no more. He, he removes all of her sin. He removes all of her condemnation. 
He doesn't just give her a clean slate because what's she going to do? She's probably, like all of us, if Jesus just gives you a clean slate, you're going to mark up that slate again tomorrow, on Monday, or this afternoon. Unless there's any of you in here who think you're keeping God's law. Oh, well, Paul, I'm very sanctified. I've been saved for a long time. I'm keeping the law of God. No, you're not. Not like it's supposed to be kept. Hey, I don't like this preacher. Well, I just got news for you. This is why God's grace is so good. I'm not being indifferent to sin. I'm just trying to recalibrate us all to understand the magnitude of the grace that we've been given. Otherwise, we just become like modern-day Pharisees, and we live by comparison. We create a culture of comparison in our churches where somebody walks in, they made a mess of themselves, and we're like, hmm, hmm. Well, you just prefer your version of sin, that's all. So Jesus says, well, hold on a second. Now, go and sin no more. And so he recalibrates our heart. It's not just, hey, I've given you a fresh slate. Try not to mark it up. Jesus gives us his slate. Understand? The great exchange of the gospel, the great exchange at the cross. If he just gave me, if Jesus just gave me a clean slate and said, go and sin no more, then on judgment day, because I'm made out of dirt and one day I'm going to be dead and I'm going to be before the judgment seat of God, just like all of you, it wouldn't be good news. Because he'd say, what did you do with that clean slate I gave you? And I'd be like, well, I was kind of selfish and, uh, oh, Wow. Looks like I've marked it up. He doesn't just—he doesn't give her a, 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 a clean slate. He's headed to the cross where she gets his slate. This is the, the glory of his grace. This is the light of the world, shining as light. Going, do you see your need for a savior? Do you see how bad this is? P.S. I'm the savior. Just put all your chips on me and on my grace. This is the. This is the amazing picture. So legalists will flip this around and they'll say, "Hey, sin no more, then God won't condemn you." That's not Christian faith. That's not the gospel. But, and over in the other ditch, lawless people only want to say half of what Jesus said. Legalists reverse what Jesus said. Lawless people only say half of what Jesus said. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And lawless people go, yay! The end! Neither do I condemn you? Uh-uh-uh, what a great arrangement. You love to forgive. I love to sin. Perfect! Yes! I love Christianity. All right? And that's so weird. So the lawless crowd are like, no condemnation, man. And they just live like this wheels off. What? That's just so weird. Jesus said, neither I condemn you, go and sin no more. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you this radical undeserved grace. Now go and live to the glory of the God of grace. I'm just giving you this grace. It's a lifetime of renewal. You know, justification is a one-time work. Boom. Justified. See that woman? Neither do I condemn you justified end of conversation full stop forgiven go and sin no more that's a, that's a lifelong process of renewal she like all of us probably fell all over herself you know in a process of renewal in a process of reform but praise jesus we are not saved by our reform we're saved by our redeemer and it is our redeemer's grace that provokes our desire for a lifetime of reform and so we see how Jesus presents this. He presents himself as the light of the world in verse 12. Now, there's a break there after the woman caught in adultery, and then he says, I'm the light of the world. There's a, there was a time lapse. So now people are around Jesus again. Their religious communities are around Jesus again. And he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in light. And what do the religious, what's the first thing the religious community do? They go, hey, says who? Oh, you're the light of the world? Oh, says who? They, they say, you're bearing testimony of yourself. You can read it there in, in, verse, uh, in verse 13. They're like, hey, you're, bear, you're bearing witness of yourself. Why should we even believe you? 
I mean, these people have serious confirmation bias, you know. We have serious confirmation bias today, right? Because all of the news that goes into our news feeds, there are these algorithms keep sending us things that kind of confirm things that we enjoy and like, and so we keep getting information funneled to us in a confirmation bias, right? So it's very difficult. You have to go. You have to read broadly and listen to the news broadly because otherwise you're you're getting a confirmation bias. And and these folks have incredible confirmation bias. Hey, who says? Why should we believe Jesus? Your your claims. You're testifying about yourself. Meanwhile. He fed 5,000 people in the desert. That's kind of a thing. Uh, he's been healing the sick. That's a thing. A word has gotten around. This man is performing miracles. And he says, I'm the light of the world. And they're like, mm, why should we believe you? Because you're saying that about yourself. It's astounding. So Jesus responds. Okay, I'll tell you how I know I'm the light of the world. He says, I know where I came from and where I'm going. You don't know where I came from and where I'm going. What does he mean by that? He's specifically, his death on a cross his resurrection from the tomb, and his ascension into the realm of God. On what basis can Jesus say he's the light of the world? I mean, the answer to the question, why should we believe Jesus is the light of the world? Why does this sermon this morning matter? Why does rolling out of bed on Sunday morning and coming to church to worship matter? Why does any of it matter? Listen, if Jesus is not the light of the world, if he did not raise from the dead, this entire thing is a waste of time. What I'm saying is a waste of time. This church is a waste of time. All churches are a waste of time. It's a glorious waste of time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge on which all of Christian faith swings. So Jesus, when they say, what? On the light of the world, they say, why should we believe that? He says, I know where I'm going. And he's, ex- he's explicitly pointing to his life, or, sorry, to his death and his resurrection. If he's not the light of the world, we have no reason to be excited about the light of God's grace that dispels the darkness of our sin. We have no reason to bend our knee and care about what the Bible says and allow the word of God to form our ethic. We have no reason to do that. We have no reason to wrestle with areas in which the Bible may challenge our way of thinking and say, I have to bend my knee to God's word. We have no reason to do that if he's not the light of the world, if he isn't who he says he is. If Jesus isn't God, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a radical world of subjectivity. And the problem with just saying, hey, man, um, life is short, just kind of live how you want, is that that's exactly what people are doing, and that's exactly why the world is the way it is today. I mean, people who say things like, hey, life is short, just kind of be a nice person, love your neighbor, and live, live however you want, are, are saying live however you want from the premise that they think that that's going to somehow lead to goodness in the world. But globally and historically speaking, the reason why we have the ethical, socioeconomic problems that we have in the world is that people are precisely living however they want. So the idea that the human heart is so intrinsically good that we don't need the light of the world, we'll just all be our own light. Let's just be the light, the light we want to see in the world, man. You know, I appreciate what Gandhi meant when he said be the change you want to see in the world because what Gandhi was, was assuming was that you would want to be a loving person. But here's the problem. Being the change you want to see in the world is precisely why the world is the way that it is. Because it's a world of subjectivity. Arthur Leff, who's the professor of law at Yale University, he wrote in 1979 in the Duke Law Journal a a paper called Unspeakable Ethics. I'm going to read a portion. What if Jesus isn't the light of the world? Here's an idea from a law expert on where that leaves us. In the absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give on key questions. If there is no God, who among us ought to be able to declare law that ought to be obeyed? 
Stated that baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that you'd expect to find a noticeable number of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with it. Either God exists, but he doesn't. But if he doesn't, nothing and no one can take his place. If there is no God, then there's no way to just state simply, this action is moral and this action is immoral. We are only left with, I like this and I don't like this. If that's the case, then who gets the right to put their subjective, arbitrary, moral feelings into law? Left concluded his intellectual essay in a shocking way, and this is what he said. As things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as good and evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. And that's how he ended the essay. So if Jesus is not the light of the world, then we're left to be our own lights in the world, and historically and globally speaking, that hasn't worked out well. And so Jesus says, I know where I Jesus says, I know where it is that I'm going. This this resurrection. After the death and the burial of Jesus, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, of whom there were over five hundred, they caused an explosive an explosive expansion of belief and faith in Christ in the first century. The expansion of Christian faith, it spanned across cultures and it spanned across class systems and it spanned across worldviews and it's forever written into human history. So if you're, new or you're, if you're new to Christian faith or you're exploring Christian faith, what I hope for you to understand is that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world and the reason why the church gathers and worships him is not just a theological truth claim, it's actually a historical truth claim. That a sociologist or a historian will both tell you it takes decades or centuries for people to change their way of thinking. Decades or centuries for people to change their paradigms. That's why we're still in the battle advocating for equality in race and gender. Because still, it's, it's taking a radical amount of time for people to change their thinking and change their paradigms. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, masses of people were changing their paradigms and worshiping a resurrected Jesus. Masses of people were changing their their paradigms and their thinking, the way they were raised overnight. Faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ, faith in the light of the world, the one who said, I am the light of the world, it didn't stay confined to a specific geographical area or a specific community where they shared ideological ideas. It was widespread. Jerusalem, Palestine, Greece, Rome, Asia, India, Africa. Spanning across worldviews, spanning across. Overnight, they're worshipping the resurrected Christ. A historian and a sociologist will look back at that period in world history and they will say, that is mind-boggling and astounding. But overnight, by the By the thousands and thousands and thousands, paradigms are being changed overnight. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. The Pharisees said, why should we believe you? He said, because of where I'm going, my death, my resurrection, the empty tomb. And after the empty tomb, people who would normally, you don't just wake up one morning when you're you're a Greek or a Roman and you've been taught your entire life that the gods are nonsense, so you leave all of the gods and the poetry and you dedicate your life to philosophy and politics whereby you can essentially be your own savior through 
resurrecting a just humanity, like you know Plato's Republic, 380 BC. Okay, you don't you don't abandon all of that philosophy overnight, unless an eyewitness account occurred of the resurrection. Jesus says, "I'm the light of the world," and it exploded in the first century when the reason he was the light of the world was confirmed through his resurrection. So then they push back again. This text I just read you. He says, I'm the light of the world. They say, why should we believe you? You're testing yourself. And then they say something else. They, Jesus says something else. And he says in verse 15, and I'm going to close here today. He says, you would judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Jesus said, okay, think about this. Jesus said that. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment's true. He said, I judge no one? Jesus is the divine judge. He is. Read John. You've got to read the whole book. You read John 5, and Jesus explicitly says, God the Father gave all judgment to God the Son, him. So he is the divine judge. And here he's saying, I judge no one. Is Jesus confused? Is this like a confusing timeline in like a comic series where there's like multiple timelines and multiple Earths and we're confused? It's like an episode of The Flash where you have to like pause it and turn to your kids and be like, can you please explain to me where we are on the timeline right now? Is that what Jesus is doing when he says, I judge no one? Watch this. It's so beautiful and, and profound. Jesus is the judge. And one day he will judge. But here, the light of the world illuminates why he came. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to judge, but to justify. And that's why, when the Pharisees said, give us the final word on sin, he said, I'll give you the final word on sin. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's why the light of the world came. Judgment day is coming. But Jesus did not come to judge. He came to justify. And the good news for the church, for all of us who by grace and through faith are united to Christ alone, apart from our works, the good news of the gospel is we already have our verdict from the great judge. We're all made of dirt. One day we're going back there. And we have our verdict and that's why we don't fear death. And that's why we don't, when we contemplate the cosmos and we sit in, in, in moments of gravity like funerals and we think about our mortality and we look out on the world. And the reason why we go through the pervasive trials that just come with being a human with a sense of pervasive hope is because we already have our verdict. And the verdict is not guilty. He didn't come to judge. He came to justify this, the good news of the gospel for us is that the judge over us is the one who justified us. The judge is the justifier. And he presents himself this way. And so the gospel reveals Jesus uh, in this way. That we, knowing that the judge is the justifier, is what motivates our worship. It's what motivates our obedience. The gospel of this grace is what animates our desire. To live to the glory of Jesus, the light of the world. To have the light of the world shine the glory of his grace into those dark and unevangelized spaces in our hearts so that we will too hear, neither do I condemn you, which will create an ever-increasing desire to go and sin no more. 
This is the glorious work of the grace and of the gospel. You know, it's no coincidence that this entire thing took place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is when they would light up the temple at night and there was dancing and celebration. And Jesus, during the Feast of Tabernacles, an annual Jewish celebration, the temple is being lit up at night and Jesus shows up and says, I'm the light of the world. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the high priest. In fact, I am the great high priest who's going to offer up the ultimate sacrifice, which P.S. is me, and this whole entire thing is going to get retired because I am the light of the world. The temple's lighting up the night sky, and Jesus on the heels of that says, I'm the, I'm the light of the world. I didn't come to judge. I came to justify. It's glorious and powerful. He is the light of the world. He forgave that woman of all of her sin. He took away all of her shame. He assured her she had no condemnation. And then he called her to leave the darkness of her sin and walk in the light of his love. In church, he forgives us of all of our sin. He takes away all of our shame. He assures us we have no condemnation. And then he calls us to leave the darkness of our sin and walk in the light of his love. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who dispels the darkness of your sin with the light of his grace. Amen. Let's pray.